This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by a fellow co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. I'm so sorry, Mark. I am so sorry to you. What, do you, what are you sorry for? What? Do you, come on, get specific. What, how did you wrong me? Did you See, I feel like now we're having one of those relationship moments. Back. I just said, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, do you, know, do you know what you're sorry for? It's like, come on. Whatever you want me to be sorry for. Specifics. For unkind things I said about your hair. <laughs> for unkind things I said about your corduroy. Right. For sins committed while getting <laughs> dressed in the morning and envying you, Liel, for your wardrobe. Right. It is our annual Yom Kippur apology episode. We talk about repentance, forgiveness, teshuva. And, you know, once again, here we are. It's the, the cusp of 5782. I'm wondering if I should actually apologize to the people I'm aligned behind their backs because that seems self-serving. They don't want to know about it. Better left unsaid trying to work up the courage to apologize to that person who probably won't forgive me, who will tell me to go jump in a lake. It is a tough time of year. And, you know, it's so interesting that the Jewish New Year begins not just with a big celebration, the the popping of champagne on Rosh Hashanah, but then is followed up with the difficult ritual of cleansing oneself to be worthy of whatever's to come in the year ahead. Leah Leibowitz, before we get to our star-studded and yet somehow therapeutic lineup of guests for what I think is going to be the most important apology episode we've ever done. I'm so excited for people to hear it. The most sorry episode we've ever done. None sorrier. It'll be huge in Canada. (laughs) Where it will be the sorriest episode. Uh, Before we get to that, I just, just quickly talk to me for two or three minutes about how this holiday is a little different, has a different zhuzh, a different valence for Israelis or in Israel than it does here? Or is it the same? So first of all, I mean, in in Israel, look, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is this truly awesome day in the the literal sense because everything grinds to a complete halt. Not a single car can be seen. Not one TV is lit, at least when I was a kid. It's just a day when all the children congregate wearing white, ride their bikes in the street, and everyone goes to shul, even those who would not go to shul on the other 364 days of the year. And there's something truly awesome about it. And this, I I think, really kind of shaped a lot my understanding of what the day is. It is not a terrible day. It is not a kind of mournful, sorrowful day. If anything, it's it's a joyous day, a day of cleansing, a day in which we're like angels because, you know, Rosh Hashanah is the day of uh, fear and uh, loathing. Uh, it's a day in which the book of life is opened. It's a day in which we begin to contemplate divine judgment and wrath. And Yom Kippur is, is when the process ends. And I learned something actually sort of as a, as a young man in Israel about this day. Can I, can I share this with you? Can I share a little Dvar Torah before we, before we begin? You can. Before you do, I just want to take note of how interestingly you flipped my assumption. My American assumption is New Year's are always like December 31st, New Year's Eve. The champagne is opened, the canapes and petty fours are eaten, and Old Lang Syne is sung. Right. And you actually said, no, 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 that's actually the terrible day. That's the day when the process begins for a week. Yeah, here, have champagnes and canapes. Don't mind that big leather-bound volume sitting there on the ledge with, with your name in one of the columns because right. it means nothing. Just eat and drink and be merry. With a large, bearded, <laughs> uh, you know, Yahweh sitting next to it, poised, you know, with quill dipped in ink, maybe going to inscribe your name, maybe not. By the way, for pronouncing the uh, express name of God, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe the column this year is uh, not looking great. So you have, you have still a bit of time. You could say sorry. Off to a bad start. It's kind of like that, you know. There's an amazing book that I read some years back and kind of revisited every month of Elul in preparation for the high holidays. It is called "This Is Real and You're Totally Unprepared" by the late Rabbi Alan Liu, which is a really sort of like life changing book. And he writes there that it used to be that Kol Nidre, right, the central prayer of Yom Kippur, to many the sort of most important, awe-filled prayer of the entire Jewish calendar. It used to be that you came and said, hey, I am um, sort of letting go of, of all the vows that I took between uh, the previous Yom Kippur and this Yom Kippur. Basically, yeah, you know, I made a bunch of vows and now as the year comes to an end, I'm going to... Uh, sort of relieve myself and excuse myself of all the ones that I that I didn't live up to. And then some hundreds of years ago, this changed. And the rabbis changed it to say, from this Yom Kippur until next Yom Kippur. Basically, look, dude, 
you have forgiveness. We know you're about to say and do some things you're going to feel really bad for in about 12 months. We know you're going to for bringing it up. We know you're going to mess up because you're human. So here, here's what God wants you to know. God wants you to know, A, that he's already forgiven you. B, that no one else around you who you're about to wrong has because for their forgiveness, you have to work hard. That is like such an amazing thing. And, and knowing that, knowing that atonement is, is, is not a moment, but a process really makes Yom Kippur super joyous for me because all, all I could think about really as, as this day ends and you stand there and you're famished and you're thinking of the martini you're about to have and you say, you know, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Elohim, that, that amazing moment of, of asserting God's presence. All I could think about is like, there is another year coming up of me failing, God, let me at least fail in new and interesting ways. Let me fail better. So you like the fact that the forgiveness from God was kicked forward a year to highlight the fact that the work to be done is with your fellow humans. Amen. Ah, God, that makes it sound so hard. It's like (laughs) we never get there. You'd like to think there's this moment right after you leave uh, Ne'ilah after the end of Yom Kippur when you are cleansed and you haven't screwed up you haven't for bringing anything up yet and you're just pure and you can just you know drink and eat and and love in in total uh, confidence that you're that you're good with the universe and actually no all it does is it opens up the next year to work hard for the things you're gonna do wrong as it should be Liel I want to conclude I want to put a cherry on the top of your drosh, or shall I say an olive in the martini of it, by picking up on something you just said. Uh, it reminded me that you're, you have a new Yom Kippur practice, which is to, wasn't it last year or the year before you started breaking the fast with just a stiff martini before you eat anything? Absolutely. Did I get that right? As, as the angel. But what, didn't, don't you have a friend? Isn't there a rabbi who gave you that, that move? I, I feel like a friend tipped you off to that as like, that'll be the best martini you have all year. Uh, Rav, Rav John Cheever of Congregation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Raim Goim in Connecticut did, yeah. Congregation Rodef Larchmont. <laughs> Rodef Old Westchester. Beth, um, Beth Swimmer. <laughs> Beth Swimmer. There you go. So it's a, it's a Liel original. Uh, Liel Leibowitz, I may join you, uh, albeit out of town, with my own martini after Neila. Don't just break the fast. Smash the fast. <laughs> But to get everyone ready, to get everyone in the J Crew prepared, we have not one, not two, not three, but a five pack of uh, cool little segments on this year's Apology episode. I spoke with legal scholar and former Harvard Law Dean and favorite professor ever of Barack Obama, Martha Minow, about what US law says about forgiveness. And you know it wouldn't be an unorthodox Apology episode without a visit from our Apology Maven, author Marjorie Ingle, founder of the blog Sorry Watch and co-author of a forthcoming book about apologies and forgiveness. Author Susan Shapiro joined us to talk about her new memoir, The Forgiveness Tour, which explores so many of the subjects that we always visit this time of year on this show. In one of the most moving segments I think we've ever done, I heard from writer Simone Ellen about her experience confronting her childhood bullies many decades later and what that taught her about forgiveness. Producer Robert spoke with Rabbi Jonathan Spira-Savet about the concept of teshuva, which Robert, as a house Gentile, has trouble pronouncing and understanding. And it turns out that the TV show The Good Place, with, of course, the great Kristen Bell, Ted Danson, etc., makes a key appearance in how this rabbi thinks about it. So sit back, relax, and get ready to atone. It's the Apology episode on the cusp of Jewish year 5782 for you, the J. Crew. Legal scholar and former dean of Harvard Law School, Martha Minow, is the author of When Should Law Forgive? She had this to say about the question of legal and human forgiveness. I'm Martha Minow, and I'm the author of a book called When Should Law Forgive? Every human being knows the concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness here meaning letting go of justified resentment. When 
the topic turns to groups or entities like the law, it is a little surprising, but just step back for a minute and look at how governors and presidents have the power to give pardons or amnesties. Look at how we have a bankruptcy law that allows individuals to get out from under debt through a structure that's authorized by the U.S. Constitution. Look at the possibility of wiping clean a criminal sentence through an expungement process or pleading directly to a police officer, please don't give me a ticket, I'm going to the hospital taking my spouse who's having a baby, or to the courts in the criminal justice system or any proceeding. The law is made up of human beings and the human beings have authority. They have discretion in many instances to decide not to proceed with a warranted sanction or punishment. And we have these structures such as bankruptcy and expungement statutes that make it actually across the board, not just case by case by case. We are the most punitive nation measured by numbers of incarcerated people compared to the population in the history of the world. That suggests to me that we have swung very far on the pendulum of punishment versus forgiveness, and we need to swing back. So on criminal justice, I now think we should call it criminal law because it's not justice. I think there's a much, much more forgiveness at every stage that should be pursued, whether it's the police officer, it's the prosecutor, it's the judge. Each of those stages, individuals are given discretion. And right now, the reward structure is tilted towards being punitive. I think we need to restore the balance because I think that human beings have discovered through time that we get along by letting go regularly of warranted grievances, of justified grievances, and moving on, looking to the future. I worry that whether it's identity politics or long overdue struggles for racial justice, there can be a danger of cultivating a sense of injury rather than a sense of repair. You look to efforts like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa that has inspired hundreds of similar efforts around the world, Canada most recently in addressing the abusive treatment of indigenous people in their schools set aside for indigenous people. There are structures that we can put in place as a society that help us look forward rather than past. Not to say what was done is, is okay or should be forgotten, but there might be better ways, there are often better ways to deal with terrible past than punishment of individuals, than blaming individuals. And those ways can include finding educational approaches, finding reparations, finding ways to build understanding, looking forward, in other words, rather than looking past. When I've talked about this subject, I've been very struck by the resonance it has in surprising places, like school superintendents have said to me, oh, we really need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to deal with the sense of injury in our, in our school community. Insurance providers say, you know, we have this problem because if a doctor apologizes, they face liability. So we tell people not to apologize. And that produces more antagonism. I think we need a reset button. You know, the same way that the Jubilee in the Bible calls for a societal reset, I think we need societal reset and we need to practice. We need to practice forgiving people. We need to practice asking for forgiveness. I think that we could develop some social processes, not legal ones, where people actually apologize. That would be good. And it's not then required to forgive, but it certainly would help if there's acknowledgement of wrongdoing. So I think that we're missing a whole sphere of social practice, partly exacerbated by social media, where the mob is taking people down by social media anonymously without having face-to-face -face encounters. Maybe we could imagine developing on social media practices for apology and forgiveness, but I think face-to-face -face would be a very good place to start.
Well, we have been lucky as a group, as Jews, to overcome what some earlier generations experienced. And I'll never forget the chief investigator for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa answering my question, how can you be so forgiving and generous? And he said, we have our country back. We are in charge. It's easier to be forgiving when you have some authority, when you have some power, when you have some social success. But that said, I do think forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. It should not mean forgetting. Lamentations is a book that we need to read and reread. At the same time, we work on ourselves and we work on ourselves. It's a project that we have every year, at least once a year. We work on ourselves and let's hope more often. And that means developing the capacities to apologize, to have the strength to do so, and also to forgive and to cultivate those as character qualities that I think stand us in very good stead. Until last year, writer Marjorie Ingle was our colleague at Tablet Magazine. She no longer is. She's busy with her co-author wrapping up her forthcoming book on apologies. But she made the time, as she does every year, to sit down and talk with us about the year in apologies. It would not be Yom Kippur without apology maven Marjorie Ingle. Before we get to some discussion of recent apologies, bad and good, I have a couple questions that have been burning a hole in my mental pocket for the past year. One of them is this. With the amount of information, and in particular archival and historical information now at our fingertips, right? People are finding out stuff we did. We're finding out stuff we did that we may have forgotten we even did, right? I'm now at the point, you and I can't find the stuff from when we were 12. We can find the stuff from when we were post-college. But people are children's age. will have the ability to go back and see that they were mean to someone when they were eight. I do have a concern that people are already making apologies or being asked to make apologies for stuff that they either don't remember doing or only hazily remember doing or don't have the full understanding of what they did. I guess I'm wondering, is there a point at which we ever say just bygones? Like it was so long ago and you were so young or such a different person that actually forgetting is better than apologizing. It's a great question. And Twitter is so freaking toxic. And we have to stop being so reactive. The, the hate machine comes for us all. And I think the first thing that we do when that happens is log the hell off and think mm -hmm. about it. And mm -hmm. responding quickly helps no one. I think there has to be a really good reason if you are going to respond to something somebody says you did when you were eight. However, something that you did, you know, I obviously I prepared for our conversation and <laughs> wanted to look at some good apologies. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that I thought was really good from this year was Ellie Kemper from mm -hmm. The Office and Kimmy Schmidt participated in a beauty pageant when she was 19 that was sponsored by a shady sort of white supremacist civic organization in her, home, in her southern hometown. So she did not respond right away. I don't remember how long it was, but it was, a, it was maybe a week, almost a week, which, is, you know, of course, in the lifetime of the internet is forever. Right. So she posted on her Instagram, Hi guys, when I was 19 years old, I decided to participate in a debutante ball in my hometown. The century-old organization that hosted the debutante ball had an unquestionably racist, sexist, and elitist past. I was not aware of this history at the time, but ignorance is no excuse. I was old enough to have educated myself before getting involved. I unequivocally deplore, denounce, and reject white supremacy. At the same time, I acknowledge that because of my race and my privilege, I am the beneficiary of a system that has dispensed unequal justice and unequal rewards. There is a very natural temptation when you become the subject of internet criticism to tell yourself that your detractors are getting it all wrong. But at some point last week, I realized that a lot of the forces behind the criticism are forces that I've spent my life supporting and agreeing with. I believe strongly in the values of kindness, integrity, and inclusiveness. I try to live my life in accordance with these values. 
if my experience is an indication that organizations and institutions with pasts that fall short of these beliefs should be held to account, then I have to see this experience in a positive light. I want to apologize to the people I've disappointed, and I promise that moving forward, I will listen, continue to educate myself, and use my privilege in support of the better society I think we're capable of becoming. Thank you for reading this. That is pretty perfect. We sometimes say, oh, don't point out how long ago something was. And she starts with when I was 19. But I think that's fair because she also says she was old enough to know better. I think that she particularly has a difficult task here because her family has long been super involved in both the life of her town and in this organization. And I do think there's a particular challenge when you are trying to separate yourself a little bit from your family. I just think this is really good. You know, she doesn't try to justify anything. And I think that it's telling that people laid off, that it did, that it's not going to be a career killer or a cancellation or whatever. She's going to be fine. So I'm inclined to agree with you. I didn't know that episode at all. So I'm, I'm going by the seat of my pants here. Huge fan of Ellie Kemper. Always glad to hear news of, of the Kemper. Let me push back a little bit, right? What is, she's probably 40 now. That's probably 20 years ago, about exactly, I'm guessing, right? Half a lifetime ago, 20 years ago, she entered a beauty pageant. It was like a clan pageant. But I mean, I mean, I guess I guess it's pretty hard for me to say, like, I mean, I played in a little league that was run by churches, I think was largely Catholic, but there might have been evangelical churches that certainly at the time anyway would have had an anti-gay spirit. Like, I mean, I worked for The New York Times, which I don't think has ever, to my knowledge, has apologized for whitewashing Stalin in the 30s. Like, we're- there, what's Look, the- there is no large organization ever. Right. There's no such thing as purity. You know, I feel like no sane adult- says anyone who has ever affiliated with anyone problematic ever in the history of the universe should never be heard from again. I feel like saying that that's what anyone is truly suggesting is listening to the loudest corners of screechy internet. But I'm not on screechy internet and I'm a pretty thoughtful and benefit of the doughty person. And when I heard you describe that, I couldn't figure out why she'd owe an apology and to whom. And I also can't figure out whom she's apologizing to. Yeah, the title of the thing was Veiled Prophet Queen of Love and Beauty by the Veiled Prophet Organization. <laughs> like, come on! <laughs> I don't know, that's uh, just ridiculous. Founded by con- Confederates. <laughs> okay, okay. It's not good. It's not a good look. So now that we're, we're off and running with good apologies, do you have any other apologies, good or bad, from the past year, from 5781, that you want to highlight for us? A thing that I think is interesting is that there is now a whole genre of art mocking celebrity apologies. So there's an an online thing called the 24-hour plays. And there were actually two of them devoted to celebrity apologies. And one of them stars Hugh Dancy. And it's called Prince Charming Apologizes from the Pool. And (laughs) it's Prince Charming in his pool, sort of explaining that he was waltzing with this beautiful woman and they were making prolonged eye contact and she runs and he says, imagine that you were in my position in society. Imagine you look like me. What would you assume? The natural thing to assume would be that this girl, I'm sorry, this woman, that she was under a spell cast by some very witch mother person and in exactly 60 seconds, the spell would break and she would, her ball gown would turn into hideous rags and her coach into an autumnal squash. And that is what I assumed. But it actually turns out that she didn't want to be kissed and she was fleeing from him. It doesn't make quite as much sense as the fairy pumpkin thing, but you know, here we are and she has made very clear how she feels. And I sort of wish she had said this before I had ransacked every home in the kingdom to track her down. (laughs) And in light of this, I want to say, I'm sorry. I am sorry that she felt the way she said that she felt, which was not how I felt. I'm sorry. I tried to kiss a person on a private pool balcony and then ordered the palace guards and hounds to chase her down while she ran away. And um, then he's just sort of looking forlorn and handsome into the camera shirtless in his pool. I mean, to some extent, though, the the reason that we have that kind of art making fun of celebrity apologies is because there are so many celebrity apologies. I do worry about the field getting crowded here. I mean, I think you and I might, like, there might be a little daylight between us on this because I do tend to think like- Mark, I 100% agree with you. And I, I will reiterate, don't apologize if you are not sorry. Like the reason why that Prince's apology 
is crappy is he's so clearly like, but I'm the prince. Well, so I just am sick of talking about about celebrities. You know, I think it's funny to point out terrible celebrity apologies because it can be a source of bonding between us as humans. Right. But I think that we get too caught up in celebrities in our culture anyway. I would just like us all to interact as human beings with one another and look to celebrities as role models far less than we do and just be able to say, hey, I think maybe I hurt your feelings. And if you're willing to talk to me about it, I'd love to. I want us to be friends and I don't quite understand what I did wrong. And I know it's something. So can we talk about it? And I guess my question is like, is there a way? I know people even in their interpersonal relations have felt like if I apologize, that's what will get reified as admitting I did something wrong, or that will be the cudgel used against me in my workplace, in the friendship, whatever. That makes me really despair of the possibility that we're going to get more and better interpersonal apologies, because I worry that the sort of celebrity culture, that the apology is the admission rather than the the healing, the tikkun, is what it's become. I feel like when somebody apologizes well, and the person is not a fame. You know, again, it sucks when we're ha- when we have to talk about famous people and the internet. Kind of ruined everything. It kind of did. Right. In terms of interpersonal stuff between people you work with and your friends and your family, that has very little to do with people shrieking on Twitter. And I would hate to think that fear of some kind of public shaming would keep someone from apologizing to someone in their life because it is hard enough to apologize psychologically to someone in your world, even if on some level, you know, you are wrong. You know, the high holidays kind of apologizing that we have to do is difficult enough without bringing in words like cancellation which are really not relevant to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Joe Schmo. You know, I think there's a reason why we can all point fingers and go, oh my God, that was such a shitty apology. But when it comes to our turn to do it, the same things come out of our mouth that we criticize mm-hmm. other people for. And in the forthcoming book, we talk about psychologically why that is, like mm-hmm. what factors are at play to make us so determined to be the hero of our own story, so unable to. Um, analyze our own behavior the way we would someone else's. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, we're coming off of four years of a president who made it his sworn thing not to apologize. Mm -hmm. And apologizing is a brave act. And we apologizing well is a brave act. Apologizing not in a cover your ass kind of way is something that should be celebrated and lauded. Always a pleasure. Marjorie Ingle is the author of Mamala Knows Best, the out-of-print but unimprovable field guide to North American males. Uh, she tried to hide that book away, but it's still available on uh, BiblioFind and ABE Books and eBay, and I'm going to get myself a copy uh, for fifty-seven eighty-two. and the co-author of a forthcoming book on apologies, which is still in search of a title. So if you have an idea for Marjorie, email us here at unorthodoxatabletmag.com and we will send it on to her and she'll inscribe a copy to you and buy you a t-shirt. Uh, I will do all of those things and more. <laughs> if you come up with a good Help. title. We need a title. <laughs> uh, happy 5782, Marjorie. Back to you. Our next guest is author Susan Shapiro. She talks to us about her new memoir, The Forgiveness Tour, which explores many of the subjects really we talk about. When we talk about apologies, questions like, should you forgive someone who didn't apologize? And what does Judaism have to say about forgiveness, really? And whether some sins are truly unpardonable. Have a listen.
Susan Shapiro, and I'm the author of the new memoir, The Forgiveness Tour, How to Find the Perfect Apology, the book that took me 10 years to write. Okay, so I have a book, which was a funny addiction memoir, which was all about my wonderful experience quitting smoking, drinking, and drugs with a brilliant addiction therapist. And 15 years later, after I met him, we had a horrible falling out where he lied to me and he completely confused me and he wouldn't admit he did anything wrong and he wouldn't apologize. And it just screwed me up and blew my mind. This was somebody who for 15 years was a friend and a mentor and a champion of my work and a champion of my marriage. So basically my crisis management strategy became my crisis. The biggest problem I had, how can you forgive someone who isn't sorry and doesn't apologize? It literally did not compute. Every place I went, everyone could see I was freaking out and upset. And when I told them what was wrong, every single person I told, friend, colleague, teacher, mentor, student, every single person had a story about somebody who wronged them, who wouldn't apologize. And I was so depressed and so confused by this that it kind of weirdly prompted this journey that had me phoning my rabbi and uh, an Orthodox rabbi in Israel and a Hasidic friend. And then I was teaching at Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen. And I asked Reverend Elizabeth Maxwell her opinion. And then there was a Swami and an Imam. And I just wound up getting very obsessed with the idea of how can you forgive someone if they're not sorry and they don't apologize? And by the way, is it even healthy? Is it insane to forgive someone that doesn't apologize? I could not let go because that question just made me nuts. I wound up including 13 of the most extreme stories of wrongs that were never righted. And the main question that I asked, aside from what was the story and what apology are you owed that you never got, I asked, how did you cope? How did you get over it? How do you deal with it? And I got some of the most fascinating, complex answers, and I included them in the book. And some of them were extreme. Like, for example, a Holocaust survivor friend, Manny Mandel, who felt that there was a very inadequate apology from Germany and not the Nazis and never forgave and thrived out of spite. There was a Bosnian war survivor who never received an apology from the Christian Orthodox Serbs who murdered his people. There was a man in Michigan, Gary Weinstein, who forgave the drunk driver who killed his wife and two children. There were very, very interesting different reasons why people forgave. In one case, an L.A. journalist and author, Alison Sinji, was extremely hurt that her Indian mother-in-law made negative comments about the fact that her daughter looked Chinese. And she was beyond hurt, but for domestic peace, because she did believe that the mother-in-law loved her granddaughter, she made a decision to let other kind actions replace the words of apology that she couldn't get. And so there were people who were able to do that, which I found fascinating. I, I spoke with a Hindu Swami and a Hindu psychiatrist. And the Hindu psychiatrist told me something really interesting because when I came to him complaining about what happened with my mentor, he said, there's something you can't see in this story. He gave me a metaphor and he said, picture you're on a highway and someone in a SUV stops in the middle of the road. And this man sees this woman stopping to pick up something in the back seat, and he's honking and screaming, you stupid idiot. You could have caused an accident. And what he can't see is that the woman's baby is choking. There is quite often something when you feel slighted or angry or upset, or you think somebody in your life hurts you, there's something in it that you can't see. And if you could see it, it would be very illuminating. And in the case of my mentor, that was very prophetic because I got an email from him and he asked if we could get together to speak in person. And I was apprehensive, but I did it. And not only did he apologize, he told me something that I, I had no idea that his wife and daughter had been very ill. And I said, why didn't you tell me that? And he said, it was too hard to talk about. I, I was afraid I couldn't talk about it. I was trying to compartmentalize. And the minute he said that, I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I wish I knew. I'm so sorry I didn't know that. And all the pain completely dissipated. So I do think on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, a good thing to think about aside from repenting for your own sins and trying to forgive other people is that, you know, a lot of people are hurting and there's things we can't see. When I was doing the interviews for the forgiveness tour, I asked people to pinpoint the one apology that they most wanted in their life that they never received. I think that's a really good thing to do. I think it's just a good psychological quest. 
I think everybody should ask yourself, is there an apology that you needed that you never got? I think you should write it down. Find somebody who you could share it with because just the act of talking to somebody else and getting a new perspective. And then if you feel up for it, ask the person if they're still living for an apology. And you know what? It's never too late to offer an apology, no matter how many years later it is. And it's never too late to forgive somebody. That was Susan Shapiro, author of The Forgiveness Tour. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Every year, we put out the call to the J. Crew for ideas for our apology episode. And every year, you guys come through with at least one segment that bowls us over, that, that becomes the best thing we are able to bring to you for this episode. This year was no different. Through the grapevine, we heard about Baltimore resident and writer Simone Ellen, a former clinical social worker who many years after being really terribly bullied by some kids back in junior high, decided to, well, you'll hear what she decided to do. Trust me, you'll want to listen to this one. Simone Ellen. My name is Simone Ellen. I'm 59 and I'm a writer. I lived in Queens, New York until I was 10. Then I lived in a town in Westchester County called Hastings-on-Hudson. My parents were ready to get out of the city And my father, who's a professor, got a promotion. So that enabled him to have enough money to buy a house. So we moved into kind of a a modest Cape Cod type house. It was up on a hill and it overlooked the Mount Hope Cemetery. We moved there in June, June of 1972. My father drove a Dodge Dart. Peasant blouses were big, hippie shirts. I mean, I listened to Carly Simon and Carol King, The Best of Bread, which I used to listen to and cry. They were very angsty, and I was a very angsty kid. The uh, school that I went to, there were two 
popular groups of girls. One was kind of the jockey girls, the cheerleaders. The other group was a little bit more artistic, smart, sophisticated, I thought. And I really, really wanted to be in that group. I mean, I was very uncool, like so many of my Jewish sisters. I had very curly and frizzy hair. The popular girls had Farrah Fawcett wings. They could blow dry them and they would flip back. And I couldn't do that. We used to wear Levi 501 jeans. They were straight legs. And the leather tag on the back pocket that has the size and the length, we used to cross out our sizes so nobody would know what size Levi's we wore. So I had a lot of insecurities about my looks. And, you know, that was one of the reasons that I thought that I couldn't stay in the popular crowd. In the sixth grade, when I was 11, I got very involved in chorus and I started to be in musicals at school. And one day I sang a solo in chorus. I think it was a song from Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. And after the class, the girl who was kind of the queen bee of the group that I wanted to be a part of came over to me and complimented my singing and made it clear that she wanted to be my friend. I think she invited me over and I was absolutely thrilled. And we became really close friends really quickly. All of a sudden I found myself, you know, one of the cool kids at school. And it was really, really important to me. And I became friends with all the other kids in the group. We had our own lunch table. I was very open about the fact that I was thrilled to be part of this group. I really didn't know how to play it cool. I didn't know how to act like I didn't care who was my friend. I probably told them how happy I was about it. And you just don't do that when you're 11 or 12 years old. So one day in sixth grade, after I had been friends with these girls for maybe six months or so, not very long, but it felt like a lot longer at that age, I came into the lunchroom, approached our table, and there were conversations going on. And when I sat down at the table, I, I tried to join in the conversation, but nobody responded to me. Nobody even looked at me. And so I tried again, and the same thing happened until it finally dawned on me that nobody was talking to me. That was on purpose, and it seemed to have been planned. And at a certain point, all of the girls just got off from the table and left. And I was just sitting there by myself. I don't remember my exact feelings at that moment, although I can imagine how terrible I felt. But I went home that day after school and told my mother that it was the worst day of my life. Afterwards, I tried to talk to them again, especially the girl who was my best friend. I, I, I kept on trying to walk up to her and try to find out what had happened, what had I done, but she wasn't having it. She didn't want to talk to me anymore. I still was kind of obsessed with them and felt uncomfortable around them, a tightness, a catch in my throat. Like, I remember one time I was auditioning for a play and I saw them watching the audition and I just messed it up. I never auditioned for another play until senior year of high school. I stopped trying to be good at a lot of things. Just felt very uncomfortable in front of them and yet I, I was just obsessed with them. I, I, I was always wishing that I could be accepted again, feeling badly about myself because I wasn't. I was absolutely miserable. I wasn't pretty enough or cool enough or smart enough or I, I just felt like I was inadequate. And until very recently, I don't think I ever got over that. As the years went on, you know, I, I grew up, I went to college, I went to graduate school, I had children, I got married, but this really never healed. I just, I just always felt inadequate. I remember one particular conversation I had with a friend about it, and he said, you know, this was 35 years ago, Simone, don't you think maybe these people have changed? I was embarrassed that I couldn't get over it. And one day I was at work, 
about two years ago, I, um, I Googled my old friend. She became a therapist. And I found an article in which she was being asked by a journalist about how she would advise parents to raise children who weren't bullies. And she said something like, you just have to teach your kids to be kind. And I thought to myself, what? I got furious. It it just struck me as so ironic that she had pretty much ruined my life. And, And there she was talking as an expert about how parents should make sure that their kids are kind and don't hurt other children. I think that may have been the moment when I decided that I was going to contact these girls. I just felt like I had to do something about it. I had thought about writing about this incident many times in different ways, but I had never come up with a pitch that was really interesting or unusual until that moment when I decided that the way to go about this would be to make it a personal project. So I decided not only to contact the girls that were in this group, but also as many other women in my class as I could reach to find out were they bullied, did they bully people, did they exclude people, what are their memories about this. So I reached out to her, the one who was my best friend, by email, and I explained that I was working on this project and that I was interviewing all of the girls that I went to school with and would she be willing to talk to me about it. And she immediately said yes, and we scheduled a time to talk. First, we caught up about our kids and our careers and what we were up to. And then I had a series of questions that I started to ask her. What was the social hierarchy in our school? Where did you fit in? How did you feel about where you fit in? Were you bullied? Did you bully other people? Did you intervene if other people were bullied? How do you think it affected your future? Have you experienced this with your own children? And if so, how have you dealt with it? And um, she was very honest. She told me that she thought that the reason why she treated me that way was because in middle school, you don't want to be seen as anxious or vulnerable. And I was anxious and vulnerable. She said, when you're in middle school, you want to stay as far away from that as you can. And that's what she did. And she recognized that it was cruel and she was sorry. A lot of it had to do with the fact that I wore my heart on my sleeve and I, and I talked about how much the friendships meant to me. And that just wasn't acceptable at that time. I spoke to a couple of other girls in the group. One person who now is a special ed teacher told me that she used the story with her classes to teach them something about not being mean to other people. She used it as as an example, the story of what they did to me in the lunchroom. She, She told her own children and she told her students about it as a tale, a cautionary tale, because she said she had felt guilty about it all her life. My anger and resentment that I had been carrying around for so many years started to really dissipate. And I started to see these people as human beings with their own problems. And I started to forgive them for the first time in all these years. I've spoken to about 50 people so far. Some of those people were bullied themselves. Some of those people told me about how dysfunctional their home lives were and how school was an escape for them. Others told me about feeling invisible at school. There were a couple of people who specifically talked about how cathartic it was for them and how life-changing it was for them to talk about their experiences. And all of that made me feel so good. I felt like I was really doing something important and healing. One woman said to me, 
If her name ever came up in a conversation about bullying and she had been the one who bullied, could I please let her know so that she could apologize to that person? That same person also told me one of the most profound stories, which was that she was in the cheerleader group and the girls were so mean to each other that she didn't have a close woman friend until she was 43 years old because she never trusted other women because of it. So it was really intense for me to understand that other people were also affected the way I was. Because to a large degree, I spent many decades thinking something was really wrong with me that I couldn't let go of this stuff. I felt like this is the kind of thing that happens to everyone. And most people, it just rolls off their back. And why am I so unresilient that I'm still thinking about something that happened when I was 12 and still being angry at these women for something they did when they were children. And I found out that I wasn't alone in that. When I wrote about this in HuffPost, I got letters and emails from people all over the world telling me they also were people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who had been carrying around this childhood bullying with them for their entire lives. Those things that happen when you're a child really stay with you and they have a tremendous impact. And I was really happy that I found a way to heal from that. I think that there was a lightness in my body, in my heart. I just I just felt like I I wasn't carrying around all this pain and resentment and anxiety. I felt stronger. I felt like I could stand up taller. I felt like I was making a contribution that really mattered. And that was such a good feeling. Simone Ellen is a freelance writer and the associate editor of Jaymore, a Baltimore-based Jewish lifestyle magazine. The piece of writing that inspired us to ask her to do this audio segment was originally published at HuffPost, where you can still find it online. Our next guest is Rabbi Jonathan Spira Savet. Producer Robert Skarmuccia talked to him about the concept of teshuva, repentance, and how he found inspiration to plumb the depths of this fundamental Jewish concept in a very unlikely place, the TV show, The Good Place. Have a listen. Hey, everyone. It's producer Robert Scaramuccia. I've been working at Unorthodox for about 18 months now, and I've learned a lot about Jewish life but I really feel like I should know more. And no, this is not me converting. Uh, I quite like my place as the token Gentile around here. We even have this thing in production meetings sometimes where my name is a synonym for, will the Gentiles get it? Like when Stephanie Butnick asks, does this pass the Scaramucci test? She's asking if everyone in our audience will get what we're saying. I am honored that that is named after me, but Given how long I've worked here and the time of year, I think I should finally learn one particular Jewish concept, starting with how to say it. And let me just try here. Teshva. Teshuva. 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 I have a long way to go to freely understand this word that is about repentance, I think. And of course, I could engage in deep Talmudic study or something, but as a card-carrying member of Gen Z, I think pop culture might be the better way to go here. And so I was lucky to meet Rabbi Jonathan Spiris who already had the answer for me. He's making a podcast called Tove, The Good Place and Jewish Ideas, which uses episodes of the NBC sitcom The Good Place to introduce us to big ethical concepts. Okay, in case you need it, very quick primer on The Good Place. It's a show about a woman named Eleanor, played by Kristen Bell, who wakes up in a place that's heaven-ish. 
She's told that she got there by accumulating enough good person points in life. People gain points for doing good things, like remembering their sister's birthday, and lose points for poisoning a river or being a Yankees fan. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. Bad people go to the bad place and are tortured for eternity. The thing is, Eleanor wasn't great on Earth. She gets assigned a soulmate in the good place, this guy named Chidi, and she tells him that there's been some sort of mix-up. She does not belong there. I'm pretty sure I wasn't a death row lawyer who collected clown paintings and rescued orphans. They got my name right, but nothing else. I mean, somebody royally forked up. Somebody forked up. Why can't I say fork? If you're trying to curse, you can't hear. I guess a lot of people in this neighborhood don't like it, so it's prohibited. That's bullshit. So uh, if you're not this person, then who are you? Holy motherforking shirtballs. Chidi was a Senegalese professor of ethics in life. So Eleanor asks him to teach her how to be a good person so she doesn't get caught and sent to hell-ish. Which Chidi isn't sure about, because it would definitely be a heavy lift. You are too selfish to ever be a good person. Well, I think you're wrong. What country am I from again? Sensodyne. That is a brand of toothpaste. You may have already guessed that The Good Place is really about the people we are here, in this life. To get more into that and unlock some of the mysteries of Teshuva, here's my conversation with Rabbi Jonathan Spira Savet, the host of Tove, where I totally bullshit my way through pronouncing that Hebrew word that starts with a T. Can you tell me just how you first encountered The Good Place? I first heard about The Good Place when it came on, and I thought, well, that's a great premise. And I checked it out, and I I loved the humor of it. And what happened to me, and I talked about this in the the first episode of the podcast, is it it began to ring so many rabbi bells that it began to feel like kind of work to to watch the show. And I had to work my way back to watching the show when other members of my family kind of discovered it. Why did it Why did it start ringing so many rabbi bells for you? What started to ring the bells was this idea that these people are actually talking explicitly about ethical philosophy, and they're pulling it off. And I am so jealous because, like. I want to be a fun teacher who teaches about ethical philosophy, and they are doing it. <laughs> Do you think that the show has anything to teach us about living Jewishly in some way? Like, are there are there scenes or or moments or ideas that kind of stand out to you or spark something in you in the, in those first few episodes? My big insight at the start was that the show is about teshuvah. It's a four season exploration of this Jewish idea. And many of the things that are the layers of the teachings about tshuva in our tradition from the many, many teachers who've taught about it over the centuries are illustrated in the show. And just as in Judaism, tshuva is not just about the high holidays, but it's about the fundamental grounding of of life, so too The Good Place is describing how how a whole life can be seen through the, the process of tshuva and all the things that that's attached to and all the things that it unlocks. I will, you know, pull back the curtain that my last name is Scaramuccia. I am very much a Gentile. Um, what is teshuva? Teshuva is the Jewish term for the, the process of personal change and personal improvement, but it doesn't exactly mean those things. The root word in Hebrew means to come back or even to come home. So teshuva is this idea that the way we move forward is by returning to things that were always true or maybe places we always were. In the Torah and the Bible, generally, Teshuvah actually talks about the physical exile of the Jewish people from their land because of their wrongs, and then the process of being able to come back. And we now think of that as also a personal term. But of course, Teshuvah doesn't mean going back to the way things were. It also means kind of rediscovering those things which were always there or should have always been there so that you can return to them for the sake of living forward in a different way. It does relate to Yom Kippur, but it also relates all the time. I take, for instance, the the teachings of Rabbi Moses Maimonides, who 
put his teachings about what he called the laws of teshuva, not in the holiday section or the Yom Kippur section, but actually as part of the ethical introduction and the spiritual introduction of his code of Jewish law, that it really teshuva is something we're supposed to be doing all the time, which is not something I learned about as a kid. And I'm not really quite sure when I figured out that teshuva is part of kind of the daily, regular Jewish life. How is the show grappling with this concept of teshuva, um, even if that's a layer that you're putting onto it? Just like, how, how does it engage with, the, with that sort of idea? Well, the first thing that it engages with is the question of how does teshuva start? If you're a person who's not really good, then, you know, can you get started? And what is it that gets you started? Does it come, I think the show talks about, does it come from inside or does it come from outside? In the show, Eleanor Shellstrop is really petrified of being sent to the bad place, you know, and burning in hell, basically. So that's a pretty big motivation and it's not a very high level motivation. And that gets her started. And very quickly in the first few episodes, she starts to notice some things that either feel good or she just suddenly sees that she has the capacity to do some good things that affect other people in a, in a positive way. And I think it sort of gets that rolling. So, so in the ideas of Maimonides, for instance, he talks about change of action as preceding a change of mind and a change of heart. So I think it's interesting how the show explores that too. It does kind of set up, at least initially, like this is the person that you are. You have a thousand points. That means you are good forever and ever. You get to go to the good place. How does that compare to the Jewish idea of what makes a good person or a moral person? Once I started thinking about the this podcast, I went to look at some of these teachings of Rabbi Moses Maimonides. So for instance, he has this famous teaching I've always loved that we should always see ourselves as basically having exactly the same amount of positive and negative points and that the next action we take will be the one that determines whether we, we're on the side of merit or the side of demerit. And similarly, that we should think about the world as having an equal amount of positive and negative points. And our next act is the one that's going to push everything over the edge for, for good or for bad for everybody. And then he actually goes on to describe how, like, if you do, let's say you make a certain mistake, if you make it once or you make it twice, I forget his calculation, like that doesn't count. But if you make it three times, that proves that that's like your mistake and the negative points accumulate. But if you revise something, you know, so he has kind of an algorithm that he, that he describes and he seems, he, Maimonides, Rambam seems to think that there is a kind of scorekeeping, but at the same time, he conveys this teaching, which, which goes back to the Talmud and to the Bible, that a person can do tshuva even at their last moment of life. And that's somehow acceptable. Judaism does really teach that the individual should never, at least we should never see ourselves as being far away or too far from a good action. If we could do even one good thing, then we should consider that to be redeeming or possibly redeeming for, for our whole lives. Does studying ethical philosophy make you a better person? Well, that is really the, the question of the whole show. I think like anything you know, whether it's the Torah that we go through from beginning to end year after year, whether it's a really profound work of philosophy, you do have to keep returning to it. That's the other tshuva. You have to go back to the texts and to the ideas and to encounter them from where you are again. I really do think that study can lead to change. I really do think that that Torah can lead to tshuva, but it's not the only thing that can, and it can't on its own. It's not just as the words and just as the texts in front of you on on paper or on chalkboards or whiteboards or computer screens. I have thought about the fact that in the in the Amidah prayers that we say on a weeknight, there's a middle section called Bakashot. They're the requests that we make during the week. And the first one is for knowledge and the second is for Teshuva and Torah. I think they're packaged together. And I started to be surprised a little bit that that there is a this placement of knowledge before teshuva, or maybe like a commitment to knowledge and then a commitment to Torah and teshuva. That somehow there is a, if not a privileging, at least a placing of knowledge in that process. And that, so I will say it the reverse. I think if you don't have Torah, it's really much harder to do teshuva. And I'm kind of hoping, just because this is being a being a teacher and being a rabbi, I am kind of hoping that it's harder for you if you don't have Torah and if you don't have philosophy to do these things. I don't want it to be hard for anybody, so so I won't say that. All I have to say is that studying is a benefit and probably is a benefit for anybody in the, if it's done with the right people in the right way. Rabbi John, thank you so much. Thank you. By the end of the second episode of The Good Place, Eleanor finds the right people. 
Chidi decides to help her. After a wild series of events that we do not have time to get into here. One resident hit a rotting turkey carcass at a thousand miles an hour. Of course, learning to be good after a lifetime of medium is hard work. It will take hours and hours of studying ethics and moral philosophy. Remind me what I'm getting out of this again. You get to avoid eternal damnation. Oh yeah, right. But Eleanor has to start somewhere. I got you a present. What? Senegal. That's not a present, that's just common decency. Yeah, but I fork and nailed it. I still have a lot to learn about Judaism and how to be a good person and life, but let me just start here. Hello? Hello, producer Sarah Fredmanator. Hi, producer Robert. Could you say the Hebrew word for repentance or coming home? Shuva. Okay. I, mm, t- could you say it one more time, please? Shuva. Shuva. Is that anywhere close? That's great. Yeah, you got to get into the, ch- the chewiness in the beginning. Ch- is it a ch sound? It's t s h ch ch ch. Ch. I think I'm getting further away now, but thank you. Thank you so much. I forking nailed it. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. For the year 5782, kick it off right by subscribing to our newsletter or send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We often come to you live and we hope to again to book us or, you know, advertise with us or whatevs. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to find our shirts, mugs, or onesies. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Special thanks to Margot Wohl for recording the interview with Simone Ellen. We sincerely hope you have all forgiven us for anything we may have done or anything we may do. And we are available to make personal apologies to anyone who tells us why they deserve them by calling us at 914-570-4869 or again, emailing us on tabletmag.com. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.